just to give you a bit of a, a head heads up of where we're going after Romans, in case you're wondering, because we're coming to the last few chapters. Today is Romans 14. Uh, once we finish Romans, we will jump back into Acts and finish the book of Acts, because chronologically that's where the events uh, lead us, uh, because the next letter that Paul writes is the letter to the Colossians. And uh, at least that's the general consensus chronologically. And uh, it's going to be just going to be very interesting to go back into some of the history of the early church after we finish up in Romans. So here we are, Romans chapter 14. And by the way, the comfy chairs that you now have, I have an app on my phone that will send an electric charge if you happen to fall asleep because these comfy chairs are really comfortable uh, so just to let you know you try, try to try to pay attention because I will be watching and I have it all up here so no, I'm kidding uh, I was actually reminded Phil that uh, way back I mean what we're talking the 70s there was a movie called Earthquake <laughs> And they actually wired the seats in the movie theaters to shake during the film. And because my, uh, our family went through the 1964 earthquake in Alaska in real time, my parents refused to go see that movie. Because <laughs> says, we've already lived it. We don't need to be experienced and have our, our chairs shake a little bit. It's a little different when the house is coming down around you. Anyway. Okay, Romans chapter 14. You have the handout in front of you, which, as you can see, has two pages just for chapter 14 itself, 23 verses. Then I have two other uh, handouts attached to that that we will refer to later. If you take a look at the text, we're not going to read it all together because that would take another five to ten minutes. I think you can get a sense of what this passage is all about. It's all about what? What do you see there? The loving of one another because they want to pass judgment on each other. For, on, for doing what? They want to pass judgment for eating. So this entire chapter is about food. And if you don't watch the Food Network and aren't really into that, this is kind of like, what? I don't get it. Why is this so important? Ligon Duncan, when he was uh, presenting his sermon on this material, he said that someone needs to write a book called Romans 14 for Dummies because this chapter is rather difficult to understand and apply in its biblical context in our modern setting. You can read it and kind of figure it out, but then it's like, well, okay, so what's, who cares? What's the application to today? Because we don't argue about potlucks. <laughs> kind of, usually. <laughs> Tom's over there going, well, I can tell you a few stories. But anyway, <laughs> typically we're not too, uh, too concerned. The way I arrange the text for you is I, you know, 
you can imagine that the phrase example one is not in your Bible in the handout and example two and example three that's not in your Bible but that's to help illustrate how Paul is structuring the presentation so you get an idea that he's making a point then giving an illustration then making another point and then giving two illustrations and then he's kind of coming back and forth Paul addresses at length the spiritual implications of eating or not eating meat. He does briefly mention the importance of certain days being holy, that's in verse 5, and the drinking of wine in verse 21. But even those are challenging to properly apply. If you look at the history of the early church, Acts chapter 15 the Jerusalem Council was all about this topic. And they concluded in Acts uh, 15.29, just read that passage to you, uh, for it seems good to the Holy Spirit to us to lay down on you no greater burden than these requirements, colon, that you abstain from what's been sacrificed to idols and from blood and what has been strangled and from sexual immorality, Wait, what? So in other words, sexual immorality and eating the wrong food are both equally challenging sins for this, these people. Okay, well, whatever. We talked about that when we taught uh, Acts 15. If you keep yourself from these, you'll do well. Unfortunately, well, I, before I go to that, also in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, the entire chapter of 1 Corinthians chapter 8 is all about eating meat, sacrifice to idols, and whether you should do that or not. Some have used this passage horribly to saying that you, can, you can't eat meat at all. And others use this passage to say that vegans are bad. They say the opposite things and they're making application into modern sections. I mean, let me put it this way. People will twist scriptures to match whatever they want it to. There is a faction that says if a man wears a beard, he is sinful. And the other side says if you don't wear a beard, it's sinful. I hope they're just talking to the men. Nobody got that. Okay, maybe I need to repeat my jokes. <laughs> You're in the comfy chairs. Um, and because I had just studied this and read about it, I thought it was hilarious in this morning's church service. We had Pastor Bajan our youth pastor, wearing a tie. Because he was preaching. But who wasn't wearing a tie sitting next to him on the chancel? Pastor, pastor Jim, who always wears a tie. And I'm going, okay, why is this funny? Because there is a story of a preacher who got very energetic in his sermon and his finger got stuck in the knot 
in his tie during the sermon to the point that he's almost strangling himself. He rips his tie off and he declares, ties are of the devil from this point forward. No man shall wear a tie in this church ever again. <laughs> the church split over that declaration. Those that felt it was appropriate to wear ties to church said, well, we can't have that. Let's go to the right church where we can wear our ties. And those that were, you know, on the pastor's side, oh. So I take it their least favorite hymn is Blessed Be the Tie that Binds. Ha, ha, ha. Ha, ha, ha. I live with that. <laughs> oh, I do. <laughs> They're much funnier than mine. Oh, anyway. So here's something in, uh, to note. And this is all part of our preamble for today. Think about the structure of the book of Romans, where we're at right now. Eight chapters, the first eight chapters were all about doctrine and theology and understanding of the salvation by grace and justification uh, of God. Then there are three chapters on the church's relationship to Israel. Is there a you know, is there going to be a salvation for Israel? But chapters 12 through 16 are considered the practical chapters where kind of the outgrowth or the daily um, understanding and practice of the theology that we've learned. But let's look at that structure. There are two verses on developing the Christian mind. That's chapters 12, verses 1 and 2. There are six verses on having a correct estimate of ourselves and, the, and others in the body of Christ. That's chapter 12, verses 3 through 8. Then 13 chapters on love. It's the balance of chapter 12, 9 through 21. Then seven chapters on our relationship between the church and the state. Verses. Sorry, verses. Okay. Seven verses, <clears throat> chapters 13, verses 1 to 7. Then three verses on love, chapter 13, verses 8 through 10. Then four verses on godly living, chapter 13, verses 11 to 14. And now, 35 verses on whether or not you should eat meat. What? I mean, think about that. The totality of all these other verses, let's see, 14, 27, 29, 35 verses from chapter 12 through the end of chapter 13 have been about godly living. And now comes the equal number of verses from chapter 14, verse 1 through chapter 15, verse 13 are all about eating meat and what is acceptable and to not judge one another. 35. Do you think there might have been a problem that Paul was trying to address? Do you think this might have been one of the most controversial issues in the church? So I ask you, and this is not a rhetorical question, 
now that you've had all of five seconds to think about it, what is at stake here? Is that a pun? No, sorry. <laughs> I'm going, wait, I can't go home, I can't escape it. <laughs> what is at stake here? It's not a pun. Okay, but what are, why? Why so much about this? Yeah. Well, at this point, the Christian church was the followers of Christ were Jewish people who didn't eat meat, didn't do all of these, you know, had all of these laws. Well, they did eat meat, but it had to be kosher. Kosher, yeah. But they had all these laws and restrictions. And I think Paul's trying to show them the freedom in Christ, and we're bringing in the Gentiles, too. So if you didn't have a commonality and an agreement on dietary restrictions or laws, it could sever the church just like wearing a tie. Yeah. You can have the first church of carnivores have a split. Right. <laughs> you know? And those go over and start, you know, the vegan Baptist saints, VBS, where it's all VBS all the time. And they're the right ones, and these guys are not the right ones, but no, they're the right ones, and you're the wrong ones. And it just gets this chaos over the appropriateness of eating meat. Now, the kind of meat, we have to define this just to make sure we're all on the same, same understanding. When you would go to the market, and you go to Fry's or Safeway, and you go to the meat department, there may be meat on the shelf that had been blessed and sacrificed to idols in the pagan worship services. And then they just turned the carcass over, they gave some of it to who, you know, whatever uh, priestly person was, and then the carcass was given to the rest, they chopped it up and sold it in the marketplace. And you look at that steak wrapped in cellophane, which of course they had back then. <laughs> you can't tell the difference. The Jew comes into that same grocery store and looks at that and goes, I don't know if I can eat this. I don't know where it's come from. And the law says that if I eat this kind of meat, I am bringing damnation, I am bringing sin into myself because in that time, what you consumed was a portal to your soul. Yeah. Well, wasn't it the principle that in as much as life is in the blood, and you place your hand on an animal as it's being slaughtered, or subsequent to your placing the, your hands on the animal, and that slaughtering carries uh, your guilt right. through the blood, and therefore, that whole that whole system of sacrifice is meaningful. And right. then, you know, the the pagans engaged in the same the same thing, but yeah. it had a different meaning. Right. And so you you know here was this um, they were being sacrificed to demons. Right. These animals, and so it, there there was a tainting going. So on. the meat became unclean. <laughs> yeah. Right. You know, it's out. By in the, the marketplace, you can't tell the difference. Right. Which is why, even to this day, you have kosher stores. So a Orthodox Jew knows that this food has not been tainted 
in any way, shape, or form, even well, today. Well, bled, it was different, right? They made sure all the blood was out. And Notice that in, in Acts, it was talking about strangulation versus bloodletting, because in strangulation, the blood stayed in the, in the, in the bones, you know, all that, all that gross stuff. Okay. Still, now that we understand that, why is this so important? Why? Why? Yeah. Um, well, the unity. Exactly. The unity, and you, you refer to it, is that when you have suddenly this mixture, already you have the Jewish believers who have been raised and taught the importance of the law are being brought into a church with Gentiles who are being, who don't have the law, but are being taught about the freedom, and you end up with legalism going back and forth and people condemning each other all over something that seems to be as simple as this. As I wrote, I said, bickering among Christians is not attractional to use a missions or evangelism term. It's not attractive. So imagine you go to a church and suddenly in the parking lot you see Charlie and Bob in a fist fight over the potluck. Uh, one, one, one writer said, yeah, imagine the potluck at, at this church in Rome. And Charlie brings pulled pork slathered in bacon and hands it to Hiram going this is so good this is so aren't we glad of the freedom of Christ that, oh, yummy and Hiram's going what are you doing that's just horrible you can't do that that's blasphemy and you have this problem and so Paul is trying to address this issue and I'm trying to be humorous a little bit here just to make my point there's a book by Leslie Flynn called Great Church Fights and he said there was a missions conference from people all over the world that came together and there was a Christian from the southern United States that was repelled appalled actually by the idea of mixed, a mixed swimming party that boys and girls would be swimming together in a swimming pool and then offended a northern brother by lighting up a cigarette. <laughs> now I'm going to stop right there. I read a passage was J. Vernon McGee preaching on this. Now J. Vernon McGee was an old good old boy from the south. Where was his church? Van Nuys, California. <laughs> so he and his wife moved years and years ago they moved from the deep south to the west coast and they went to the beach his wife almost passed out because the the lack of clothing <laughs> that was on display and the mixed bathing that was going on but then she lit up a cigarette <laughs> and there were people go oh, what are you doing Okay, so, and I, I still remember, this goes back to my childhood days at our Baptist church in Alaska, that one of the deacons 
would slip out during the service to smoke his cigarette in the parking lot. And I always thought that he was on his way to the dark place <laughs> because of what he did. Okay. Um, <clears throat> and it, at that same meeting, there was a woman from the Orient couldn't wear sandals with clear conscience. A Christian from uh, Western Canada thought that it was worldly for Christ a Christian acquaintance to wear a red wedding ring. And yet a woman from Europe thought it Im immoral for a wife not to wear a ring that signaled her status. A man from Denmark couldn't bear to watch the British Bible school play soccer while the Bi British students shrank from his pipe smoking. <laughs> you see, this is the meat versus the not meat thing in other outlets, in other forms. There's this wonderful poem. Believe as I believe, no more, no less, that I am right, and no one else confess. Feel as I feel, think only as I think, eat what I eat, and drink what I drink. Look as I look, do always as I do, then and only then will I fellowship with you. And isn't that almost what we end up doing with each other. We want to find a church that looks like us, feels like us, talks like us, acts like us, believes like us. And I've done all of that talking and we haven't even touched on verse 1 yet. So let's look at verse 1. Chapter 14. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him but not quarrel over opinions. Isn't it interesting? The entire preamble that I've just given is almost wrapped up in that verse alone. But there are a couple things you need to look at carefully. One is, as for the one who is weak, ooh, ouch. And why is that an ooh, ouch? Turn your page of your handout and look at the last verse that I have printed. It's from chapter 15, verse 1. Because chapter 15, verse 1 says, we who are strong. So he's contrasting weak and strong. So what does he mean by weak? Um, this is a heavily misunderstood verse. Uh, it's, it suggests that the person is less spiritual, that they are weak in the faith, that they, they need help. And the problem is, if I were to go around this room at random, you're going to love this. You're weak. You're strong. You're weak. You're strong. And if I start doing that, I've just divided the room. And no one wants to be the one that's the weak one. So when he writes this, can you imagine? Anyone who's listening to it, wow, that's not me. You know, I'm one of the strong ones. Because none of us is going to admit that. So I find his use of this terminology interesting 
because he's actually writing to everyone because everyone thinks that the other person is the weak one. So he's saying, if there is a weak one among you, this is how you treat them. Isn't that interesting? It's almost a, uh, let's say, reverse psychology type of thing. At least that's how I read it. I could be reading it completely wrong. And if so, don't tell me because I don't want to be weak. Um, anyway, most scholars, most interpreters feel that what Paul is trying to describe here are those who have not yet fully grasped the meaning of freedom in Christ. It's as simple as that. They have not grasped the full meaning of freedom in Christ and are therefore either caught up in defining faith by actions and behavior rather than in their relationship to Christ. So it goes back to the works. I'm saved by works. I'm saved by this. In other words, if you, you know, you, you don't uh, you don't go to movies, you don't dance, you don't smoke, you don't drink, you don't go with girls that do, you don't get, you know, none of that kind of stuff because that's the definition of Christianity. Instead, he's just trying to say, there are those among you who may not have a full understanding of this. And consequently, there are some, some challenges. Now, I wrote down, so the next verse, next part of that verse, is the word welcome. Now, the ESV translates this particular word welcome. It has the meaning of acceptance. It isn't just saying, you know, put the visitor badge on them and pat them on the back saying, welcome to our church. Shake their hand, forget their name. He's saying, accept the person into your body, the body of believers, with their weaknesses. Bring them in. Come alongside them. Put your arm around them. Bring them into a Bible study like this one, or some of the others that we have, into a small group, and disciple. Because they might have never heard some of this material before. Or if they heard it, they didn't understand it. If we allow the discipleship in our church to only happen during the Sunday morning sermon, you're going to not have enough opportunity to have someone get truly discipled. Our church is different in that the, the Bible is preached and exposited in an amazingly wonderful manner. But there are those of us who have gone to other churches and have listened to sermons and went, wow, that was vapid. There was nothing in it but anecdotes and heresy. Gee, that was great. If that's the level of discipleship, imagine what the people in the pew are hearing. So, welcome them 
And then don't quarrel over those details. I write here, uh, don't quarrel, don't have disagreements over certain personal practices. I keyed off of a, a comment that one, one pastor made. He said, our favorite sport in church is to try to change the person next to you. To think like you think. And I wrote, actually, it's an Olympic sport. <laughs> with some who have practiced it all of their lives and they're really good at it. For example, do you drink beer or not drink beer? And if you drink beer, are you re drinking the right brand? For those of you who know that controversy. Yeah. Um, should you dance? Should you wear lipstick? What's the length of your hemline, ma'am? Uh, what are the approved church instruments during worship? What Bible translation do you, do you read? Is it perverted? Should you wear zippers or buttons on your clothing? What is the appropriate church attire? Should you wear a hat to church? Ladies? Men? Do you homeschool your children? If you don't, hmm. You see, we get ourselves wrapped up in labels and identities and Paul's trying to say this is a mess what are you doing so he's using and I'm, I'm going into modern day you know stuff 21st century stuff in the second century it was a lot around what you ate the kind of food you ate uh, which is just so fascinating but you can take the principles of what he's saying and move it over here and we can you know dig in you know one person might eat anything and the weak person eats just vegetables okay well they're weak because they're not eating meat oh wait that isn't what he's saying <laughs> let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the ones who ate because God has welcomed He's doubling down on that word. God is the one who's accepted them, not you. So why don't you do what God's doing? Who are you to pass judgment on the, on the servant of another? Is it before his own master he stands or falls? And he'll be upheld for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day is better than another. And the, th the thought here is there was an argument about whether um, the Sabbath is Saturday or Sunday. Now at this point, it was still Saturday. This Jewish tradition was very strong. And I meant to look it up, and I didn't. But when did it swap? No, I meant for us. Why do we worship on Sunday and not Saturday like the Jews did? When did that happen? And I can't, off the top of my head, figure it out. Because there is a Protestant denomination, the Seventh-day Adventists, that still worship on Saturday exclusively. And they're very strong in certain parts of our, uh, our country. And uh, Loma Linda, Riverside, California, very strong in that, in that region. In fact, I may have mentioned this before, but when I, way back in my bookstore days, we had a bookstore in Riverside. 
and they had to have a big discussion of whether or not to be open on Sunday because of all the Seventh-day Adventists. The sales went down on Saturday. And so when they opened on Sunday, whoo, now there was a place for the Seventh-day Adventists to shop. Problem was, none of the Adventists showed up. Only the Protestant, the other evangelicals showed up after church. <laughs> the whole experiment was, was just... That's your answer. It was, it was foolish. You do have the answer. Okay. On March 7th, 321 uh, uh, Roman Emperor Constantine I first issued a civil decree making Sunday the day of rest from labor stating all judges and city people in Fasman shall rest upon the venerable, venerable day of the sun. That's interesting. So 321 AD it was Constantine as the emperor who made that declaration. That's right around the time of the Council of Nicaea mm -hmm. which was 325 I have that right? Something along those lines? Huh. Anyway. Didn't they, didn't they basically make it Sunday because that was the day It was the first day of the week. The and it was also the resurrection. Also the day of the resurrection. According to tradition. Other sources say Christians have corporate worship on Sunday in the first century. So, sure. you know. Again, it, we don't know exactly, but Early. it's been a while. Yes. It's a whole big controversy of what is the Lord's Day? Is it Sabbath? Is it Sunday? You know, anyway. Then example three, the one who eats, eats in honor of God, since he gives thanks to God, and the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to the Lord. J. Vernon McGee actually wrote, it's not what's on the table, it's what's in the heart. But that's a really profound statement. It's not what's on the table that you're eating, it's what's in the heart while you eat. That's an element of Christian freedom. And yet, it doesn't necessarily solve the problem that we're dealing with in this context. I wrote a side note here. Just one of the things that just popped in my head. Because we're dealing with principles of behavior in common settings, and making judgments on other people's behavior based on your own. Paul did not have to address today's fixation on media entertainment. There are a lot of verses in the scripture about the eyes being a portal into the soul. Back then, that wasn't as much of an issue as it is now. Back then, the mouth was that portal, which is why he addresses it here. But we have to be very careful in letting our choices becoming prideful and judgmental when it comes to the consumption of media, etc. And I, you know, we could talk about this forever, but it's a fascinating thing to watch no pun intended, sorry. Um, people casting judgment on others depending on what movie or TV show they watch. For example, I was accused of being out of touch and irrelevant because Lisa and I don't go to R-rated movies. 
I was in a conversation at a writer's conference with an author who was very aggressive and very opinionated. And he says, you know, you know, and I said, no, we don't do that. And he goes, oh, and you call yourself a gatekeeper in the publishing business? In other words, you're the one who can decide whether or not a project goes past you into the publishing world? You have no, quote, you have no right because you do not have a broad enough perspective on how people consume their stories. He was making a judgment based on my judgment and I just sat there going, wow, number one, you are very arrogant and very full of yourself and then I had to stop myself, well because I thought that, that means I'm full of myself <laughs> and I'm being arrogant. It was not a very pleasant conversation. I assumed he was the strong and you were the weak. Yeah, that's what he thought. Um, but you see, the opinions really get ugly very quickly. In this context, Paul is saying you welcome and you have a conversation about it. Verse 7. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to, die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Why do you despise, hold in contempt your brother? For we all stand before the judgment seat of God. H.A. Ironside told a story um, about Bishop Potter of New York sailing to Europe and found out he was going to be sharing a cabin on the ship with someone he did not know. It was just a sign. It's just kind of how it worked back then. After he met his cabin mate, he went to the ship's purser and asked if he could leave his gold watch and his other valuables in the ship's safe. He explained that normally he wouldn't do that, but he had been to his cabin and met the man, and judging by his appearance, he was afraid that the man might not be trustworthy. And the purser smiled and took his valuables and put them in the safe. Well, I'll take care of them for you, Bishop, because the other man has already been up here and left his valuables for the same reason. <laughs> and you kind of go, wow, the bishop, was, his appearance wasn't trustworthy. We make these judgments. We have to be so careful. Now this is not to say that we do not judge where the Bible speaks clearly. We have to be careful in our delineation. So on whether you wear buttons or zippers, okay, have at it, you know. Just go somewhere else and argue about it. But if you and I were to have a conversation on the authority of Scripture, we would probably stay in disagreement and it would be a challenge. And I would have to stand by my position with firmness but we could still have a conversation. But I would certainly try my best to convince you of the veracity of Scripture. So 
guy named Gavin Ortland has written this book, came out three years ago, called Finding the Right Hills to Die On. <coughs> a book of theological triage. And I had never heard that term before, and it's brilliant. Um, apparently, the word triage comes from a French word. Can you tell me how to pronounce it? Because I can't. Triage is very good. Triage, but it's T-R-I-E-R. Triage, that's the verb. Trier means to sort. Trier means to sort. So triage, well, we hear about that in medical terms. I mean, if this guy is all, you know, next to death, you know, sorry, you know, put the, the red tag on him and don't bother because he's not going to make it. If that's what triage means. Theological triage. They break it down three levels. First level would be things like the deity of Christ, the Trinity, justification by faith, the resurrection, the authority of Scripture. These are immovable. These are things you can take a very firm stance on. The second level of the theological triage, at least this is according to him, would be things like the mode of baptism. In other words, how much water do you use? Is it immersion? Is it sprinkling? Is it like uh, the, the, uh, the certain Mennonite group that it's triune immersion? You've got to immerse them three times to make sure they're, they got it all. Um, and then there's always the argument, so what about the person who dies in a fire and never got to be baptized? Are they saved? You know, all those questions. That's second tier. But also included in that is the nature of what happens during the Lord's Supper. Is it a memorial? As just something you do in, in, in memory? Or is there something spiritual happening, as a Reformed tradition would say, and the Catholic tradition says that the bread and the wine is actually changed? Transubstantiation. So is that something, a hill to die on? It's an important conversation, but, you know, let's not start a war over it. The third level <laughs> says, number one, eschatology. How things are going to end. R.G. Lee, the famous uh, evangelist, used to say when it came to premillennial, postmillennial, amillennial, he would never even say ah to his dentist. Because you're not going to be so go ah millennial. <laughs> anyway, I just thought that was hilarious. And then also whether it's a literal six days of creation, as in 24-hour days, or if the days are ages. You see, triage. We can almost do that same thing in some of these issues. You just kind of decide, is this really that important? Is it something to split the church over? Do we split the church because somebody painted the parking stripes in diagonals? That happened at a church. They repaved the parking lot, the, the painters came in and painted them in diagonals instead of straight, and the people blew up. <coughs> Half of them said, this is perfect. And the other half went, no, we need to restripe the parking lot. And they moved to another church where the parking stripes were correct. 
that you know we're human beings but sometimes we we become caricatures of ourselves you know the trouble is some of this stuff is like like even if you took clothing you know what what's appropriate and what's inappropriate to wear I mean some of that is like cultural obviously yes. if I was in a Muslim thing I would never wear something to show my shoulders correct right? you know that country here I would but where do we but there is a place where we do fall over into sin you know what I mean and, mm-hmm. and I mean it's like yeah, okay so maybe we don't know whether or not you should see an R-rated movie maybe that's questionable but would we see porn you know what I mean so exactly. at what point is that line where you say okay it's it's not like it's it's not like um, that we could just say yeah I can see anything we have freedom in Christ right if you found that somebody was regularly going yeah I'm free I'm, I'm I, I see porn all the time I'm free you know what I mean you say I know that's not okay right that's so not okay what, where, well this is one reason why I hand, gave you in the handout the fourth page oh. <laughs> something I came across yes all of this we lose sight of who Christ is and why we claim to be a Christian exactly. and this is the nonsense that drives so many people away from even wanting to find out about God. We don't want anything to do with this God that you seem to have such craziness for. Right. And it's got to break God's heart. It does. And I think that's why Paul writes so much about it here. If you look on page four of your handout, this is something that I came across and I just looked at it and went, okay, it's a little much. And obviously some guy was brainstorming to come up with various ways of trying to answer the personal question, and this is the point, Sandy, is that it's a personal question, is where does the conscience prick? And when you start looking through these things and you start asking yourself, well, is, can God ask his blessing? Is God gonna be with me while I'm doing this? And if I'm saying, and if there's no conscience at all, well, maybe that's another conversation for another time. But sometimes, I, I'm not saying sometimes, I believe that the Holy Spirit is within us to help convict us of our behavior and things that would be wrong. Now you say there's cultural things. Goodness, Charles Spurgeon got into this knockdown, dragout disagreement with Joseph Parker. They used to share pulpits until Spurgeon discovered that Parker would go to the theater. And he's going, you can't be doing that. And then Parker said, but you smoke cigars. And Spurgeon said, yeah, as long as it's not an excess, as in more than two at a time. <laughs> that was his answer. And you're going, these are two very powerful men of God were at odds over something that one said, this should prick your conscience. And the other went, well, it doesn't bother me. So who's right? That's the point. Nobody's right in that situation. They're both wrong. They both ignored what's here in the scripture. And this is where it gets interesting. Because it starts talking about not just only passing judgment, but also starting in verse 13 and beyond, to not put yourself in a position of creating a barrier or a stumbling block. For another and oh I read so much stuff on this 
I mean, that verse, stum- that word stumbling block is the Greek word scandalon. Scandalon is used 15 times in the New Testament. It's used two other times in Romans. Romans 9.33 and Romans 11.9, both times where Paul is quoting the Old Testament. Jesus said to Peter in Matthew 16.23, Get thee behind me, Satan. You are a scandalon to me. You're a stumbling block. And so this idea of being a hindrance or being a problem to a brother should make you pause and say, if I'm doing this, am I hurting he or she? And this is what Paul's asking. And boy, this is not easy. I'm, and I don't have an, a, a grand answer for all of you because then you might say, well, then that person's behavior must become mine. But I disagree with that. Well, now you've got a problem. Am I supposed to adopt what they do so that they don't stumble? I don't think that's the, the issue either. Because remember, the context is about eating meat. It's not about going to movies. Because yeah, that wasn't the context, but it's the principles here of loving the brother. And by the way, the stumbling block... The Greek word there for scandalon is actually the part of a trap where the bait is placed. That when it's touched, it's snapped shut. So it's not the trap itself, it's the thing that triggers. So it's just laying there in bait. You're baiting somebody by putting it out there. There are many conversations that I read about, especially for those who struggle with alcohol, saying, yeah, I'm fine until I'm watching someone else drink. And then I, the craving begins because I see it. And if it weren't in front of me, I wouldn't be tempted. Well, there's a point to that. You know, that's, that's an issue. And so um, you know, there are those who would say, well, you should never drink at all. Well, then there's others saying, well, what's wrong with that? Well, C.S. Lewis drank. He was a connoisseur. So what? So you can see where this gets. I should have brought my can of worms. Brought it out. <laughs> maybe maybe actually open it up and fed it to you to see if you would eat it. <clears throat> I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. And that word unclean is the Greek word koinos, or common. So we get the word koine Greek, common Greek, unclean. It was common. It was every day. Nothing special about it. just was the language of the street. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good to be spoken of as evil. Wow. This is is hard for us to comprehend. This is why I wish I had a book called Romans 14 for Dummies. I just bought a copy for all of you and said, go read it. I don't want to teach it. Because I'm stepping into areas that are hard to quantify with specificity. Because our culture 
basically is bombarding us from every direction to tear down our Christian witness in the eyes of others. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. Whoa, thanks Paul, verse 17. You just said it was. No, he's not saying it was. Because then it would be works. He's saying it's not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. And in verse 19, So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. I had one commentator who actually said verse 19 is the best verse in all of Romans, which I thought was a little hyperbole, a little bit of an exaggeration. But he said, think about the implication of what is said in verse 19. Let us pursue what makes peace and for mutual upbuilding within the body of Christ among each other. If I can come alongside you and have peace and I am helping you build, guess what? That's what spiritual gifts are for. Spiritual gifts are for serving others. Not just so that you've got something someone else doesn't. It's so that you can use that gift to build up the church. And when you have in chapter 12 and in chapter 13 all these verses about love, loving one another, building up one another, living with one another in the body of Christ, and then he spends 35 verses on food? You think he's making a point. He's trying to tell them, stop the bickering over this. And if someone else is having a problem with what you're eating, stop eating it. Peace is more important in this context than you having a taste in your mouth that you like. And if that person then understands and comes to a freedom in what is eating, then go ahead. Or if you're going to eat that, eat it in private. Don't literally walk up with your, you know, pulled pork with bacon bits, you know, will come up into the guy's face and go, yum, 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 <laughs> I get to eat this and you can't. I am better than you. That's just not what he's saying. And can you imagine? So I have to ask Tom, what are the controversies over potlucks? <laughs> you said that you've heard you had some. Any come to mind? In France, we have people from a lot of different cultures. So just eating food from a very different culture, not knowing. Uh, one of the big ones with the French Antillian culture, people would bring their boudin, which is a kind of a sausage. But there are Christians who only eat white boudin, and others that eat the dark boudin. The dark boudin has blood in it. It's a blood sausage. So that would become a major issue at some potluck. At a potluck. Oh my yeah. And so, as a church leader, would you talk to the parties about it or just let it ride? We would probably not deal with that 
all together? Uh, right. Those who individually. Really upset about it, we would try and talk, talk to them individually. Because again, you're going back for, towards unity rather than saying, you know, you're getting awfully upset over something that's in triage terms. It's really not going to change it that much. Talk up. If I, you mentioned earlier about, oh, do I have to start doing what you do? But it seems like this is more of a passive. It's without a refrain. Refraining. There's lines, but that's why there's Romans 1 and 2, et cetera, because there's a list of things that yes. are, this is a red line. Yep. This is not a price. And so that has to take the context of what this is talking about. Yep. Wages of sin is death. The lists, of, the litany of behaviors that are horrific have already been laid out. And now he's getting over to what we would think be a minor thing, but he spends a major amount of time talking about it because it was breaking the church into pieces. You had a thought? Did you have a thought? Oh, I was just listening to what Tom, I wasn't even sure, but listening to what Tom was just sharing. It's like how important it is for us today with so much multiculturalism around us to understand our brother and sister. Because that seems absurd to us at this point. And France is not that huge country. But we need to be Awareness is important. Awareness yeah, we. I, many years ago, I edited a book called A Compact Guide to World Religions, put together by ISI, which is an international students uh, organization for people who would bring students from other cultures into their home during college. So the whole point of that book was to say, this is how you understand Hinduism. Here are the, the, the key points that when that Hindu comes to live in your house, here's what to watch out for, just so that you're aware. And here are some methods or some key points where you can start a conversation about Christ in a context that they would be receptive to it. It's a brilliant little book because it went through all the major religions around the world and saying, this is what the culture is bringing to your house. And here's a food that they would consider absolutely mortifying. Don't serve it because the conversation isn't going to go well. And I think that that's, that's an important thing especially in a blended culture like America where goodness everybody's just kind of mixed together with all sorts of different things. So you need to touch upon this with breaking up churches today, which is I guess um, homosexual relations. Where a lot of people would say, well that's all old testament, you know, that's Christ didn't talk about it a whole lot. So therefore that's just like, you know, you shouldn't eat pork. Uh, you know, that's, that's, that's Old Testament. We can we have more freedom today. What I would say, I think this is biblically 
Well, that's Paul. Yeah, but Paul talked about it being wrong, but not Jesus as much. It's like, you know, I, I'm pretty sure it's still wrong. Yeah. And Paul's pretty clear in Romans 1 that it's a, abomination. A, an abomination. Yeah. There's no question. Right. And I don't, you know, yeah, I, we don't want to get off the no, track I mean, because. I was trying to think of what, where's. It's the triage thing. There are certain things yeah. that are, <coughs> you just draw the line. Yeah. I think Bijan mentioned it today in his sermon. He says yeah. there are things where we present the gospel and we just simply say, we can love you, we can welcome you. We can have the conversation, but we are not going to compromise our beliefs just to accommodate your aberrant behavior and say we're affirming. Yeah. That's the key word now out there in the church, saying we're an affirming church. Well, what does that mean? Yeah. Um, also, a lot of the, um, the current culture, the cancel culture, I should say, is is about canceling others. Anybody who doesn't agree with you, and mm -hmm. anybody who doesn't agree completely with you, right. are blocked out, are shut out, they're labeled as bad, evil. And it's like they don't exist. And you yeah. have your very narrow little group that you listen to, and the others that you put outside. And there's just no dialogue at all. So I, I feel like a lot of um, what you're talking about here um, yeah, you know, di you know, discord and, and arguing are, are not attractive. But at the same time, if if someone can see people coming together with such different views and actually discussing it and being able to talk right. about it and not and then still eat together and sit together right. and pray together, and what a witness that is! Because they're like, what you you don't agree with them, and they're saying this thing you completely disagree with, or maybe they're not even a Christian, and you're still sitting and eating with them, you know, mm -hmm. you're still mm -hmm. able to talk to them and dialogue with them and be their friend, and they're like, like, that's not even something people do now, is talk to people who don't have, share the same beliefs as them, yeah. and who disagree with them, so. There's, a, there's an anecdote that Charles Spurgeon wrote about, of a, another church leader, who was high church. So in Britain, that would be Episcopal High Church, almost Catholic, okay, just for lack of a better uh, moniker. He is Reformed Baptist, so they're opposite ends of the spectrum. And he writes about this man. He goes, I absolutely despise his opinion as a high churchman. I feel it is aberrant and it's a path to hell but I love this man. I absolutely love him. I have meals with him. I love him with the fullness of my heart as a fellow believer and man of God. And he was going, whoa. But when they got into conversations, it got bang. They were disagreeing, but then they would go, you know what? Let's just not talk about that right now. We're not gonna, it's not, I'm not gonna change your mind, you're not gonna change mine, but man, I love you dearly. That is exactly what you're describing. Because you would have, sometimes people can get pretty, um, what's my word, enthusiastic. 
about their theological opinion on something, you know what? Fine, you can believe that. I have a couple friends that I disagree with their opinions on certain things, but they're good friends. I'm not going to end the friendship. I'm not going to unfriend them, to use common parlance, just because I disagree with them. That would be foolish and would be sinful, actually. Although, there is also the admonition to not, and again, this is, only, this is addressing believers, this is addressing non-Christians, that if someone is involved in heresy, or someone has sinned and turned from God, you go to them, you go right. and then as a brother, for their own sake and out of love, you have nothing more to do with right. them. And so it is, is, do the young children see Mr. So-and-so, Mr. So-and-so, palling around, eating together, and think, oh, so I guess really that, because it's always going to wait on the side of the darkness. Depends always. on what the, what the yeah, division so, is over. That's why it's, Right. There's the red line is so important. Right, the red, and that's where I think. And yeah, and that's where that's where I think theological triage yeah. is a brilliant way it, of looking really, at you it. You have to be careful because you can't. You have to find what is the red line. If someone comes up and says, "I don't believe that Jesus was divine," I went. This is Camelback Bible Church. Do you not believe the Bible? Well, some of it. We need to have a conversation on what is the Bible, number one. We need to have a conversation on the authority of Scripture. We need to have a conversation, then you start digging into it. But right now, you're not understanding who Jesus is. And if you, do, if you take, <coughs> take away his divinity, then his death on the cross is meaningless. And the resurrection was impossible. So you just simply wiped out everything that makes the church the church. So maybe we need to talk about that. But, but even that approach is gentle. You're engaging them in conversation, right. saying, this, no, this isn't what I disagree. Not, you're of the devil, get away from me. You right. know? And like, right. that, is, right. that is what the culture Click. does. Click, unfriend. Right, they're like, <laughs> like, I will have nothing to do with you, I don't even hear what you have to say. Yeah. And so, yeah. And I, I think Paul's trying to address that and I think God is trying to address that with us to make us think twice when we get into disputes or rancor over anything and then try to figure it out as to what is most important verse 20 do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God full stop and I would say, if do not for the sake of fill in the blank, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it's wrong for anyone to make another stumble. It's good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to struggle. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats. Because the eating is not from faith, and whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. And I had one more handout. It's almost immaterial at this point because we've finished the entire chapter. But in case you ever want to look at the intentionality of Paul's writing, 
the, uh, the structure of chapter 14 is actually a chiastic format. That would be A is here at the beginning. Yeah, C-H-A-I-S-T-I-C. It's a literary st structure. So if you see it on page three in your, 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 your structure, you see A is at the top, but its counterpart is the, at the end. And then B is in between, then C, E, D, F. So it's like a in to one point and then out. So that the repetitive nature of this chapter is what bothered me. He spends 23 verses repeating himself. Yeah, granted, that's a good teaching met, met, metaphor. But if you look at it as an intentional uh, literary structure, he's actually showing how it all interrelates. And that's why I gave you that handout for your tickles and grins. And I know you're going to spend at least six hours meditating on that page <laughs> this week, just like I did. Ha. Anyway, let's pray. Lord, thank you for our time together. Again, your word is so full, there is almost no bottom to its depths. And I dare say there isn't one. Because we could come back next week and study this entire chapter again and still not plumb everything that's here. Lord, thank you for your inspiration to have Paul address what seemingly to us is irrelevant and yet extremely relevant to our daily walk and our understanding and our conversations with other believers and with non-believers as we walk through this life in Christ together. In Jesus' name, amen.